today's episode concerns a topic that can be traumatic, uncomfortable, or even triggering for some listeners. The Passionate Stewardship Podcast and brand does not aim to invoke this kind of response in anyone. Instead, we want to bring awareness, education, hope, and healing to anyone who is a victim and survivor of sexual violence. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual violence, help and support are available. Please call your local rape crisis or even dual servicing domestic violence and sexual assault agency or contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at one 800 Again, that number is one 800 The call is free and confidential and someone is available to support you 24-7. You can also chat online at online.rain.org. Again, you can chat online at online.rain.org. For male survivors, you too can chat online using online.rain.org. And for U.S. service members and their families, please call the Department of Defense at 1-877-995-5247. Again, that number is 1-877-995-5247. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, a podcast for helping professionals who strongly believe in supporting their community and the humans who live there. I am your host, Dr. Sherry. As I shared on the last episode, April is Sexual Assault Awareness or Sexual Violence Awareness Month. And here on the podcast, you will hear us again use those terms interchangeably because sexual violence encompasses all forms of sexual crimes. And because we are not lawyers here on the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, you will hear us use both sexual violence and you will hear us use Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And we'll use Sexual Assault Awareness Month because we want to honor the name of the month. So today, I have a friend to the show, the fearlessly confident Jancel Melendez. And I brought Jancel back today because I think she shared this the last time she was on the podcast, but Jancel is also the lead sexual assault advocate for a nonprofit in Wilson, North Carolina called Wesley Shelter. 
I'm pretty sure you've heard me talk about this nonprofit here on the podcast before because it is the agency where I serve as the executive director. And the Wesley Shelter is the domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking response organization that serves Wilson, North Carolina. Wilson, North Carolina is a small town that sits right outside of what Rocky Mount, Raleigh, those areas. And we provide services to both victims and also survivors to domestic violence, sexual assault, and also human trafficking. And Jancel provides leadership to all of our sexual assault hospital advocates, and she is our lead sexual assault advocate. So I thought that she would be awesome to have a conversation with today, focusing on some of the institutional structure questions when it comes to organizations and their practices and how advocates show up for victims and survivors. We are also going to touch on some radical self-care, which is very important for not just victims and survivors, but also the individuals, so your advocates and your case managers who support victims and survivors through their journey, and also how victims and survivors, what steps they can take when they are ready to thrive. Without further ado, I welcome to the podcast our friend, Jancel Melendez. Hey, girl. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm great. Thank you for having me back. I'm super excited to be here, especially like talking about this topic, which is very important and I'm passionate about it. So thank thank you. You are welcome. Thank you so much. I sort of kind of touched on it already, but what services can you expound further on that Wesley Shelter provides survivors of sexual assault? So as a lead sexual assault advocate, we provide services, clothing, we provide food, we provide the legal aspect of it, counseling, therapy for our victims and or survivors. And something that I really want to emphasize about is that we're there to guide them through the whole process, let them know what resources we have, because a lot of times survivors have no idea of what resources are out there so that they can actually benefit from them. Right. I think also one of the things that I think I can't speak to other sexual assault or sexual violence responding organizations, but our therapy is also for the victims or the survivor's family also. So if you are a victim or survivor of sexual violence and you are in a relationship and your perpetrator was not in the relationship with you or your parent or someone very close to you is trying to support you through that, like our therapy services are also available for a family member who is working through that. I am really excited because the therapist that we have on hand now also specializes in providing services to children who are also victims of sexual assault, which is very uncommon in organizations like ours. And so the fact that our therapist is able to provide that kind of service um, to children is 
um, very important. Yes, and you mentioned something about the family, um, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's I've seen it a lot that sometimes the victim is not prepared yet to receive this service, to receive therapy, but the family is. Because sometimes there's also guilt in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I am... I, re- I really appreciate that um, we do have that service for our, not only the victim, the survivor, but their family as well. Um, and it's so important because the family will actually be that support system for the victim. So if they get help, they know what to do. They also know how to express whatever the emotions are. And then they'll be in a better position to assist the victim. Because unfortunately, victims don't speak up um, quickly or um, it takes a time. There's no time frame. This is so individual. Some will are ready to talk about it at the time of the event, um, but others will hide it, will stay silent and would not come forward with it. But if their family members are aware of it, they'll seek help for themselves and then they'll be well prepared to assist the the survivor. Awesome. So Chancel, can you speak briefly to, so a call comes in to our crisis line and our crisis line, if anyone is in the Northeastern North Carolina area and is in need of our services, Wesley Shelter's crisis line is area code 252-291-234. Four, four. So if anyone and we and advocates are advocates and crisis line staff are available 24 seven, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So when an advocate calls into the crisis line and unfortunately they are a victim of sexual violence and they need to go to the hospital, um, our crisis line then calls whoever is on the calendar. That person has a very the, the advocate has a very limited amount of time to then get to the hospital. Then what happens? So I want to explain that there are different ways that a victim can actually reach us. Okay. Um, victim can actually walk in to our offices okay. within 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And this you'll see because they didn't go to the hospital. They didn't call the police, but they want to see what resources are out there. So we'll receive some walkings. Um, if it's after hours and it's an incident happened and the victim personally calls our crisis um, center, our crisis line, then the advocate um, in that time will ask some questions if she wants, if she's safe, if she wants to go to the hospital, if the police needs to be called. And um, depending on how that conversation goes, then that um, victim will be guided into those resources. And another way, and that's usually the way that we actually get involved, is when the victim has already gone to the hospital, is in the hospital, and then the crisis line received the call from a hospital nurse letting us know that there is a victim. And then the advocate usually has around 30 minutes to arrive to the hospital and be there through the whole process, which we'll be talking later on about. Okay. We work with several entities I'm sure this is universal when it comes to rape crisis organizations and dual servicing organizations because we are identified as a dual servicing organization, meaning that we are a DV organization and a sexual violence organization, but you do have some standalone rape crisis organizations. So, um, Wesley Shelter is identified, um, 
particularly when I am writing grants as a dual servicing organization. So, but I'm pretty sure this is the standard across the norm that we have relationships with different systems and institutions within the community in order to try to make these situations work as seamless as possible. Can you speak to some of the entities that are involved in these processes? So with us, um, we it is the Wilson Medical Center. We also have the law enforcement and any other, like, for example, we also have Hope Station. We have other nonprofit organizations that will actually reach out to us. But mainly when um, a victim is in that situation and is seeking help and they have gone to the hospital, is either law enforcement or an employee from the Wilson Medical Center. Okay. And Wilson Medical Center is the hospital that will typically the nurse or the same nurse will be the one that will be calling our crisis line. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Yes. The only information that that employee will provide will be the victim's name and the room number so that when we go into the emergency room, we can introduce ourselves and let them know that we're there for this victim and this is the room number and then they'll allow us to go in and then be part of the whole process. Okay. Okay. And let's let's just go ahead and speak about that process. So once you get to the hospital, what does that process look like? So I know we are super big on protecting our clients, protecting the confidentiality of our clients, protecting the anonymity of our clients. A lot of it is due to the safety because some of our clients are, well, maybe probably all of our clients, it's a safety thing. And for me as the executive director, it's not just a safety thing for our clients, but it's always a safety thing for the staff also. So speak to, you get the call. You have a limited amount of time because time is of the essence when it comes to the kit and the processes that go into collecting evidence. So can you speak to, you get the call, you get to Wilson Medical, and then what happens? So when we get there, we introduce ourselves as advocate that will give us access to the room and then obviously we'll knock um, into the door. We'll open the door and we'll introduce ourselves. We'll let the victim know why we're there, who who call us, what our resources are, and we'll ask her permission if she wants us, she or he wants us there. Because we're actually there to advocate for them, to be there for them, represent them. And sometimes it's just a stranger doing the midst of what just happened, right. of their situation. And they're in crisis, they're emotional, and they're like, what is this stranger doing here? So we'll explain the reason that that we're there for. And some of them um, will say, no, I don't want you here. But then the nurse will usually jump in and she will reinforce the reason that we're there for and why it is important. And then I'll say like 99.9 of the times the victim will say, yes, it is okay for you to stay. Okay. And it's hard. You know, you're seeing them there on their um, gown. And when you get there, it's cold. Um, the, the detectives are there. The police officers are there. Then there's an advocate. So there's a lot of people that are unknown to the victim. Absolutely. I know they're all there mm-hmm. for their for their wellness and that the procedure is done correctly and that it complies with all of the um, rules or requisites that are needed. 
So once that client understands that, and she and you get, and I say she, um, because a lot of our clients are women, but reality is that it could be men as well and children. And we have been seeing some men clients lately, which is why we have trained a gentleman to serve as a sexual assault response advocate. So when we do have male victims come into the hospital, we can dispatch him instead of a woman going just out of being respectful of the comfort level of having a woman in the room while a rape kit is being conducted. And then um, at least for myself, I always talk to the victim then and I make that um, connection with the victim and I let them know I am here to speak for you. If you don't want something to be done, let me know. I'll let that that be known. If you need something that you need assistance with, let us know. And then I'll explain briefly what the process looks like because they're seeing this box being open with everything being right. taken out, a lot of questions being asked, and they they're emotional. Sometimes they're overwhelmed. They don't know what's happening. So I usually start first with that process, explaining what's going to be done, the time frame about it, and why the benefit of doing the rape kit. Right. Yet at the end is the decision. A lot of people don't know that they can say no to the rape kit because that's your decision if you want to go through the whole process, if you want it done, or if you don't want it done. But luckily, like our victims, they always want to do the rape kit. So that's a good thing because then evidence can be collected. Mm -hmm. And after you explain them the process and why you're there and that you're there for them, you can feel that there's that calm in them within the midst of everything that's going on. Because the rape process, it usually takes about an hour. Mm -hmm. And it starts like, and I'll do a brief, if that's okay with you, like a brief description um, a box is open, then there's mm-hmm. a lot of papers. The nurse has to ask all these questions that unfortunately, previously, either the officer or the detective has already asked. So mm-hmm. it's like he has to provide that information all over again. But once those documents are completed, then it starts with the swabbing in the mouth. Then they'll do also hair pulling of the hair, which for me, that's so hard. They right. have to pull about 50 hair strands. Then the same in the vaginal area, they'll do swab. The doctor will come and do the vaginal exam. If there has been any anal penetration as well, they do swabs of that area. If you're, if the victim is wearing the clothes that they had at the time of the incident, that clothes will be taken away. And for me, that's sad because sometimes, and I've seen this a lot, it's their favorite bra or their favorite. And you'll think like, why are you crying over a bra? Or why are you crying over your favorite jeans? But people get emotional about those things. Right. They attached for them. And I remember one time that this uh, specific victim had needed a special bra and they were taking it away. And she's like, what am I going to do? I need that. So that's when we jump in. I told her, that's okay. We're going to get you one. And we actually did. Okay. That's, you know, we, those are the services that we provide. We, and that's when you first asked at the beginning, what services do you provide? I mentioned clothing, food, relocation, all those things, because it's not only the advocacy within the, the uh, hospital. hospital room, mm-hmm. the rape kit, we provide all those services so that the process is a little bit easier mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. At the end, once the rape kit is done, then it's handed to the um, officer and the officer will take that and will provide the to the client 
we call it clients. That's why you might hear me say right. victim and client. I don't like to call them victims, so we call them clients. We provide them the kit number so that they can track that rape kit. And we also, because a lot of times, like Jan Soldier said, that their clothes are taken because of evidence, we ensure that we keep stuff at the hospital, like underwears in various sizes and uh, sweatpants or scrubs and t-shirts in various sizes in a locked drawer that we hope that we can consistently maintain. So when their clothes are taken because of evidence that we can give them something to leave the hospital in, because not everybody has someone to come and pick them up from the hospital or not everyone chooses to call someone for them to come and pick them up from the hospital. Now, I do know that when it's not just a hospital the hospital or the same nurse or the nurse in the emergency room that calls the crisis line. The victim themselves or the client themselves can call our crisis line. And there are instructions that advocate or a crisis line worker will then give that person. And what are those instructions that we share with a client when they call the crisis line? If they say, I've just been sexually assaulted, I need some help. I want to go to the hospital. There are instructions that are passed on to them. What are those instructions? There are instructions. First of all, we always make sure that the victim is safe, that she's in a safe location, that we can continue to talk to her. Because if not, then we'll quickly call 911 with the victim on the line. But if she's in a safe location and she has just called or or the victim has just called, then we let them know not to eat anything, not to take a shower, and to as soon as possible go to the to the hospital or any rape crisis center. Usually here in our area is the hospital. Also, not to re- remove any of their personal belongings or their clothes, anything. And this might sound weird, but it's really important. We even ask them not to go to the bathroom. Mm, okay. Do you know their necessities? Yes. Okay. And that's really important because then in the hospital they'll take the urine sample, sample and mm-hmm. they do everything. So that they can preserve that evidence. Right. And I just want to, so we put a disclaimer at the top of every episode, and in no way do we want to trigger any of our guests, but it is really, really important that this information is put out into the community because this is the, this, this topic is a topic that impacts human service professionals and social workers. And this is a topic that impacts organizations like the Wesley Shelter or organizations like Interact or organizations like My Sister's House. These are organizations, and these are some of our sister organizations. These are organizations that impact the work that we do. This is a topic that impacts the work that we do. You know, sometimes there are protocols, there are procedures, but it's our advocates and it's people like Jen Sale who are on the front line and who are doing this work and who also see that sometimes our clients or our victims are not always being honored and respected like they should by those that should be supporting and helping them. So Jensel, how can someone support a friend or a loved one who has experienced sexual violence? 
Um, first of all, I will always say that the person that is going to be the, the support system or mm -hmm. is supporting their friend or family member, they have to be patient. They have to be patient with the victims. They have to actually listen to them and not interrupt when they're trying to explain what happened or whenever they feel that they're ready to speak. We have to respect that space that sometimes is needed. And victims will usually only stay like bits and pieces at the time. And that's why I say patience is important because we would like to know so that we can provide that help as us, as that family or a friend that is being supportive. In all ways, like in all means, tell the victim it's not their fault. Absolutely always feels guilty, feels that she or he did something wrong and that they were deserving of it. So as a support system, we should tell them it's not your fault. You did nothing wrong. It has nothing to do actually with something that you did with one of your um, actions. And then always encourage them to speak up, like to go to the police, to go to an adult if they have not done so yet, to go to a trusting adult, to go and seek therapy and go to a certain uh, center like ours, Wesley Shelter, so that they can learn what resources are out there available for them and help them seek them. And if the incident recently happened within five days, let's say that something did happen, there was a, an assault that then encouraged that person to go to the hospital because a rape kit can be done within five days. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and go with them. Don't just take them to the hospital. Okay, I'm here. I drop you off. Bye. See you later. No. Go with them, be there with them through the whole process. Okay. Because when you when a victim goes to the hospital if they want to, they're allowed to have a family member or a friend, someone they trust. They are allowed to have that person with them in the room. Okay. But once the rape kit starts, then that person is not allowed to go out. So the whole rape kit process is completed. Right. So that way we don't contaminate any um, evidence. And I know that's one of the things that I hear, not just from you, but hear from some of our other colleagues, that that's one of the things that they are consistently letting like officers know and, you know, hospital staff know, like, please stop leaving in and out of the room because that is contaminating the kit. So that is, that's good. That's a good point to make that. And we definitely don't and want to do that. Yeah, exactly. And an advocate has to be certain why she's there or he's there as an advocate. Right. That they're there for the victim. I don't care if it's an officer. I'll let them know, like, you're here, ask your questions. But once you're out, you're not coming in until this process is done. Then you can complete your interview. Check you out being and an old be honey badger. <laughs> Right. They don't know their rights. They don't know when, what to say, what not to say, what they can, can be done or not. But as an advocate, that's the re main reason you're Right. There. That's why you you're know, trained. Do. You do know. Exactly. Right. And even the nurses, sometimes they'll be like, oh, I need this. And they'll open the door to go. I'm like, uh-uh, you need to call someone to bring that in. And then that person will not come in. I just open the door, grab it with my hands and give it to the nurse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very important. Advocates should always know that it is okay for them to speak up and to stand up for their client. Right. I know one of the things that we have constant conversations about, Jan, so is that our particular hospital just doesn't have enough sane nurses. And I think 
it's important. I wish I could have saw Jan Sill's face. I, I think it's important and we're not medical professionals, but if we have any nurses that, you know, just decide today on your day off or today on your lunch break, or you just might be sitting at home, sipping on a cup of tea, doing some radical self-care, and you've decided, hmm, what is this Passionate Stewardship podcast all about? And you're a nurse trained to be a sane nurse. Like, sane nurses are so important. And they're important because they know, they are trained to provide and to administer the kit. And this is not to minimize emergency room nurses. This is not to minimize nurses at all because nurses have a job that I know I couldn't do. Nurses have a job that I would not want to do, but we need more trained, sane nurses. Sane nurses are so important because it would prevent our advocates from having to have the conversations like, hey, you can't do that because at the end of the day, yes, our responsibility is to advocate for the client, but that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to also to not be your supervisor and to tell you what you are and are not supposed to do during that process. We will because it's protecting and it's ensuring that the that the victim or the client is getting what the victim and the client needs in that moment and ensuring that her kid is being handled properly so her perpetrator can be prosecuted properly. The flip side to that is, is that when that, when, when the advocate has to be in the room and she has to be ensuring that the client is safe, but she also has to then be supervising you as a nurse. That takes away from what she needs to be doing with that client. So I employ, if there are any nurses that just happen to stumble upon the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, episode 17, please, 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 you know, find out the requirements to be trained as a sane nurse. We need more sane nurses. So after a victim or client leaves the hospital, what resources are available for the client who is struggling with the aftermath? So we have the therapy counseling specialist for them. We also try to find group sections out there that are willing, you know, or if the victim, because this is very individual, if the victim is willing to go into a group section and talk about what happened to them, that's that. We also encourage them to seek that therapy. Sometimes they don't want to do it with us. They want to do it with someone they already know or have previously been seeing. All the resources that we do provide at least when I speak with them, is that I talk to them about journalism, about meditating. For a reason, there's some people that will also ask about if there are any church groups out there that they can go to. Mm-hmm. I always also provide the North Carolina victim rights so that they know what are their rights. And I personally, like when they do come into the office for a follow-up, I like to go with them to the court. I want them to feel how it is 
I want them to meet the DAs and usually DAs or the employees will talk to them, letting them know whenever you're ready to continue with your process or go ahead and file charges if that's something that the victim wants. We're here for you. And that helps because it takes that stigma, you know, of the how scary being in a courthouse can be. And at least I them, let them know we are all here for you as a community, all these services, when you're ready for them, because the client has to be ready and has to want to go through those resources. So speaking of the criminal justice system, what steps can be taken to ensure that the survivor receives the support that they need? So the first of all, it will start if the survivor actually wants to file a report and wants to do uh, file charges for that. Once they do, then the applicant will go with them through any interview with the DA, any conversation that is needed. We'll go through every single court process with them. So we'll explain the whole process, but not only explain, they will not be alone. Okay. So as the advocate, you basically are with them from start there really isn't any finish no it's unless the the case actually is completed and someone has been sentenced with a penalty or something but the reality is worth with them since the moment they made the decision that they want to press charges because we'll walk with the client to the magistrate we'll be there we'll ask them like hey what else do you need are you sure this is everything that happened do you remind yourself of something else because we have to think with victims they sometimes tend to forget some details that's an advocate that you've been already sharing with them and having some conversations with them you're there like hey you're forgetting this so you are like that support for them but it all starts at the magistrate office once charges are filed then the whole process actually starts And it's not completed because it takes so long. It could take a year, two, three years. But I don't want this to um, discouraging to anyone. Right. Because you will not be alone. You will not be forgotten. We'll be there through the whole process. And a good thing of having an advocate is that that advocate will actually be in contact with the DA's office. Like, hey, where are we standing? What's happening with this? Are we moving forward? What are the obstacles we're encountering? And we'll be able to talk to our client about those. And that client will feel like, yes, something is being done. Yes, okay, we're in the good path. Okay, I understand. It might take a little while, but we're doing something. So, yes. So, I cannot tell you when when it's finished, but we're there since the beginning until there's an arrest, then there's a whole criminal process and then by the end that person is um, charged. Not charged, but I want to say there's a sentence. Right. And the unfortunate part is that these trials or this whole process can take such a long time that sometimes these survivors, they move out of the area and we lose contact or they maintain contact with the advocate. And I know that the, what was it, the the Saki program? They they pay for the the survivor to come back for the trial. You know, they pay for hotel and the travel expenses for them to come back for the trial. But I think that program ended and I don't know whether they were refunded because these processes take so long. Mm-hmm. And it's a downfall, the length and time period that it takes for a case. Because sometimes clients just want to heal 
Some of them want to forget. Right. Some of them mm-hmm. are like, okay, I'm leaving this behind. I don't want to continue with this. So yes, that's a downfall. It's a downfall in, in so many ways because if I was so full transparency, I was a victim of crime several years ago and it took years for the process to finally come to a close. But every time I had to explain it to whether it be a detective or the lawyer, whether side, either regardless of what side it was, it was reliving it all over again. And it is traumatizing. You know, you want to be one and done if possible, but it's not the reality of it. This took years. That's the unfortunate part of being a victim of a crime is that it's not a one and done. And it's not up to us when it's going to be done. And we have to do whatever it takes to put one foot in front of the other every single day until we get that that sentencing. And you have to have the support system around you because you are going to be questioned and you're going to have to relive it several times and talk about it several times before it's all said and done. And that's the importance of an advocate. And sorry to mm-hmm. interrupt because you mentioned something crucial. You mentioned a support system. And we must not forget that most of our clients sometimes don't have a support system. And that's the importance of an advocate because they'll find that in an advocate. We're trained for that. We will be there. We'll understand the whole process. We'll understand. It even bothers us when they have to like tell their event what happened constantly. It doesn't matter if it's someone that's trying to help them or if it's the other side, Mm -hmm. but we understand the process of having to say that one over and over and over again. And I want people out there to know that don't be ashamed to call an advocate. Don't be afraid to call a nonprofit that is there to provide resources for you Mm -hmm. because you're not alone. We're here to support you. We're here to listen to you. We're here to make you understand what resources are out there for you so that you can start your healing journey. That's a good point. So I think you kind of dipped your toe in the next question. So (laughs) what does it mean to be a sexual assault advocate? Because you you are both. So you see DV clients also. And sometimes the two overlap. But your primary role in the organization is our lead sexual assault advocate. And you provide leadership and training to our sexual assault um, hospital volunteers. So what does it mean to be a sexual assault advocate? Wow, it means a lot, really. But foremost, it's mean, it means to be there, to be present, to be well aware of what 
a sexual assault victim is, what they're going through, understanding every single part of it, being well aware of what resources are out there to provide. Because I'm just an advocate, I would not be able to provide counseling, for example, but I need mm -hmm. to know what counselors are out there because there's a lot of counselors that can be generic and I'm not undermining anyone, but there's others that actually take care of victims that have been survivors of mm -hmm. sexual assault. So they know mm -hmm. how the process is, what the traumas are, and what to look out there. Also, just be there regarding to listen. It's very important to listen to what they want. So as an advocate, you can guide them because we're just guides. That's how I see myself. There mm. to listen to them, but I'm also a guide. What are your needs? And then if I am well aware of what resources we have at the Wesley Shelter or in our community or nearby, then I'll be able to provide them to that victim. And I can accompany them. I can call for them. I can seek any information that they're in need of. I'll be there for that. I actually consider myself like a guide. But we have to be there to understand that there are going to be times that they're going to be angry. They're going to be crying. They don't want to talk. They just want to be sitting there next to you. Sometimes they'll ask for a hug. And it's very important that as advocates, we do have boundaries. And not because I feel that you need a hug, I'm going to hug you. No, I can. I need to actually ask, do you need a hug? And clients will okay. let you know. And I have had clients say yes. And I have had clients say no. And we have to respect right. that no. And it's not personal. That's their um, way of expressing, I don't want to be hugged. And it, and it needs to right. be respected. But we right. actually got guidance. We're there to be with them through the whole process. Because I cannot tell them, like, yeah, I'm here with you through a process in the criminal, but I'm not actually going to be doing the paperwork in the criminal area. It's going to be the DA's office. But I'll be there with them. I'll guide them. This is the office. This is the person that's going to be contacting you. Hey, we need to fill this out. And the part that I say fill it out is because when you're a victim, you have some rights. And one of your rights is to be well informed of the whole procedure. If the person is in jail, for example, and it's going to get bonded and it's going to be released as a victim, you have the right to be informed that that person is going to be released. Right. But for that, you have right. to sign a document. And that's when I say I'm a guide because they don't know that they have to sign a document. But I'll take them there. I'll guide them there and be like, hey, this is a document we need to sign. And this is the reason behind it. And as well with all the other resources that we have. We have to understand that sometimes we can think that one of the best things or resources that we have for our client would be therapy or counseling, but we also have to be aware that the client is not prepared to receive that therapy. So then right there, we're a guy for them. I'm like, I'm here. I'm listening to you. I'm listening to your needs. I want you to know that in the moment that you are prepared to receive this service or that other service, let me know because I'll guide you through it. I'll take you to it and I'll provide it for you. I know victim compensation is out there for victims of crime. Do victims of sexual assault, do they qualify for victims compensation? Yes, they do. And it's very important for they, them to know that when, if they go to the hospital, cause not all victims go to the hospital to get a rape kit done, but if they actually did, it's very important for them to know that the rape kit has no cost. They should not receive a letter from the hospital charging them for anything. 
And mm-hmm. if they do, because they provided a medication or a prescription that was given to them right there in the hospital or any other services, then through victim compensation, they can take that bill, fill out the application, present the evidence of the bill that was received, and then they will be um, compensated for that as well. But it's a process. There's an application that they need to complete, fill out, and then that will be taken to Raleigh. There's going to be an evaluation about it, and then they'll let them Mm -hmm. know. Okay. So, larger question, and this is probably a whole nother podcast episode in itself. How can we as a community work to prevent sexual violence? That's a great question. And we have, and it goes back just to education. We have to Mm -hmm. educate our population, our community. We have to talk about it because sometimes we think it's a taboo. We don't talk about it. And we have to be very realistic that, yes, it does happen in our community. It happens amongst ourselves because a lot of people are in denial. They don't want to talk about it because they believe it does not happen in my community. It doesn't happen to us but it can happen anywhere. So for me, communication is a huge thing. And amongst women, amongst men, let's talk about it. And let's, like friends, like I was talking recently about this, about this young lady in Mexico that she went out with her friends. She got a little bit more of drinks that she needed and her friends left her alone. And that Mm. person then disappeared. No one knew about her. When she was found, she was found out dead. But when they did the autopsy, Mm. she had been sexually um, assaulted. And that's when I'm saying, as friends, let's talk about it. Hey, if we go to a party, we go out, and if you see that I have so many drinks, don't leave me behind. We come together, we live together. Um, Let's talk about it, and at least if you're my friend and we go out to have some drinks and you're going to the bathroom or you're leaving the table, I'll be like, hey, take your drink with you. And if they don't, I'll just throw the drink away because if I had not been paying attention to that drink, I don't know what might have happened. So I throw it away. And that's a rule within my friends. And I'll go and purchase another one. Safety is first. We have to watch out for each other. We have to talk about it. It's not just like, hey, it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month. We're going to bring this up now. No, we constantly need to talk about this. And for parents out there, if you have children, let's not be calling names to our private parts like we usually do, like the cookie, if it's the vagina. No, let's teach them how the correct word is, that it is okay to mention that word. And I say this because I remember I was in a training and they put a video on and this little girl obviously was something dramatized, but it had happened in real life. This little girl Mm -hmm. goes to school and she's crying and the teacher asks, why are you crying? And she said, my grandfather ate my cookie. So she's like, oh, Mm -hmm. don't worry, you can get another cookie. So no one understood what that meant. So time has passed, like child is not doing good in school, a lot of you know, those red flags, mm. mom is called, she's got then taken to the hospital until the child finally decides to talk. And she's like, all this is happening. She went detailed. So every time she said, my grandfather ate my cookie. And it was not until mom was called that she understood what the child was saying, because mom knew that she called the vagina a cookie. That's your cookie part, right. cookie part. So we have to stop that. We have to, that's your vagina. No one needs to touch that's it normal, Normalize it. Normalizing that mm-hmm. language. And yes, right. we have to talk. As a parent, I know that might be hard. I'm not my, a mom, but I know that might be a, a hard topic, but we have to be realistic. I think another thing that we don't talk enough about 
and we talked about it on the first episode this month, is consent. It's okay to ask, and it's okay to educate your children to ask, can I give you a hug? And it's okay for adults to ask a child, can I give you a hug? It's a a parent, and I am a parent. A parent should not force their child, go give them a hug, go give them a kiss. You know, that should not be, a child should not be forced to do that. And something very important, and sorry that I interrupt, is... No, 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 go ahead. That that you're saying, we do that with our family members. And Mm -hmm. yes, I don't care if it's my brother, my grandfather, a family member, if a child doesn't feel comfortable near that person, doesn't want to kiss him, doesn't want to hug him, doesn't want to sit on the lap, don't make your child do that. Let them know it is okay not to hug them. It is okay not to give them a kiss. And then ask, maybe not in front of the person because the child might not want to talk at that time. But when you go home, talk to your child. Why do you feel uncomfortable? Is there something I need to know? I remember when I was a little girl, um, and I think I've mentioned this on an episode, I was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather he did not play little girls don't sit on the laps of grown men like you don't do that like and so i was around you know my uncles all the time and especially his brothers which would have been my great uncles uh uh-uh, uh you don't sit on their laps and i don't think it was a thing that he thought that they would do something to me and maybe my cousin nicole who i grew up around but it's it's just inappropriate for little girls to do that and a, cons- a you know a consent example is that so you met Brittany, best friend to the show uh her daughter demi she demi is 9 and I remember when Brittany started to have the consent conversation with her. And one day I went around and Demi calls me Shishi. And she says, Shishi, can I give you a hug? I'm like, girl, you better give me a hug. And so Brittany was like, no, I am teaching her consent. And so I just thought it would, one, I thought it was the most endearing thing ever. But I had to explain to her, like, you know, thank you for asking me. But I am one of those persons, sweet pea, that you never have to ask me for a hug. You can always give me a hug. But it it is important that you always ask if you can come in someone's personal space. You know, I know for me, I am weirded out by people coming into my personal space. Like, arm's length. (laughs) Like, why are you so close? <laughs> because I'm a hugger. So I had to learn that, yes, there's personal space. Mm-hmm. So as an advocate, that was something that was shocking to me at the beginning. I didn't understand why. Because for me, a hug mm-hmm. is like smoothing. It helps. You know, it helps you calm down sometimes. But then reality is not everyone feels the same way about a hug. So yeah. I remember my first training for sexual assault. When I saw those boundaries, do not hug, do not touch. I'm like, why not? I'm a toucher. I'm a hugger. And now, and I feel now comfortable. And I asked. And at the beginning, yeah. when someone said no, it was like, why? Why a hug is so much? Mm-hmm. You know, we need a hug. 
But then I understand that I need to respect that decision because it's about consent. And see, for me, I don't need a hug. I need kindness. Don't come up all up. No, you're lucky that I don't hug you. (laughs) Yes, no, but we need kindness. We need so much kindness in this world, and it's for free. Yeah, it it absolutely is. So, how can we reduce? I think this is a similar question, but it might be because I think there's a there's layers to it. How can we reduce the stigma surrounding sexual assault? and encourage survivors to seek support or help? So one of the stigma, again, it will be communication, education about Mm -hmm. it. But first of all, we have to take out the stigma that it is the woman's fault. Because to this day, Mm. it's like, oh, you were wearing shorts, you were in a bikini, you were late at night, what were you doing in the street at 2 a.m.? What? No. You're allowed to be in the street at 2 a.m. You're allowed to wear a bikini, wear shorts, whatever. No, and it's actually, we have to think about it because when we we talk about this topic, we need to think that we're still in a predominantly men society and men let us know like what you have to do, how you must behave. And no, it's not like that. Men need to control themselves. And you're not going to let me know when it is okay to go out, what to wear, what to say. So no, that stigma needs to be broken. It's not the woman's fault and you have done nothing wrong. Right. It's one of the reasons that we celebrate Denim Day, you know, the overturning a conviction of a 40 year old man who forcibly raped a young 20 year old. And the reason for the overturning was because her jeans were tight. So the justices in Italy felt, oh, you had to assist him taking the jeans off. So that was consensual. Like, really? Like, I don't care what I wear. And, you know, I have this conversation a lot because I am a curvy woman and I wear my curves proudly. I don't care what I wear. How I look, it is never an invitation. And no is a complete sentence. Amen to that. Yes, and also so, there's this stigma behind, like, if you're a sports, sports player, it means that the girl threw herself at you. No. Right. You could be a sports player, but if I said no, and even if I started that I wanted to kiss you or be with you at the moment that I said no, and not only verbally, only, like, my language, like, if I push you, that's a no. That's a sign that I'm resisting. I don't want right. that to happen. Mm-hmm. You need to respect. Mm-hmm. You have to hold your pants mm-hmm. on and stop your actions right there. So there's this thing that we talked about on the first episode this month. So you have consent and enthusiastic consent. So you have the verbal and the nonverbal cues. So what you just explained were the verbal and the nonverbal. So if I say no and I push, that's enthusiastic consent. Because I'm giving you the verbal and the nonverbal. So, no. So, I'm telling you. My body is telling you by pushing you. But I am also saying no. And if that means that afterwards, you no longer want me. Okay. And I think men can, can break this stigma. 
so much, I'm not going to say better, but I think they can support women with breaking the stigma when it comes to sexual violence. Like there are so many things that men do that perpetuate sexual violence amongst men. The catcalling, you know, the derogatory statements and about women's bodies. These kinds of things perpetuate sexual violence amongst women. And this is not to underscore that these things don't happen to men as well. But the prevalence of sexual violence amongst women is higher than that amongst men. Now, I will say that men should be treated with the same tenacity as women when they are sexually assaulted. And we've seen firsthand that men are not. That's something, and I'm really happy that you brought that topic because we sometimes focus on the women's side of it, but we have to also focus on the men's side of it and that they deserve their Mm -hmm. respect. Sometimes when men go to the police or law enforcement, law enforcement will start laughing at their face. Like, what? Mm-hmm. You're trying to make a report for that? What? Like, they make it as if it's a joke, and it's no joke. They're there. They're like, hey, I want to report this. This happened to me. So why diminish a man because he went through it and not a woman when mm-hmm. they go to the police? Mm-hmm. Not just the police, but also with the court system. Court system, their friends, even mm-hmm. their peers. They're like, you're complaining that happened yeah. to you? Yep. I mean, I know we're talking about sexual violence, but we see it with domestic violence also. So one of our focuses on not just the podcast, but also in my consulting and coaching business is radical self-care. And I know that's a big thing for you also. And you hold so much with what you do for Wesley Shelter. So what are some tips that you can offer to human service professionals and social workers, um, particularly advocates that work with victims and survivors of sexual assault because truth is some of these calls come in one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. You're at the hospital sometimes five, six, shoot, a whole shift, like a whole eight hours, sometimes depending on the severity. So what can you offer some ways to radically incorporate self-care into your life yes for every human service out employee out there self-care is a must we need to take care of ourselves and um for me i'll usually divide it in three areas which will be emotional spiritual and professional within the emotional part identify those comfort activities that you enjoy those people or relationships and places that you love to be in go seek them out be there take time for yourself 
something very important within self-care is because sometimes we think about self-care positive and we don't think about the negative. It's like, no, take time to be in your present, in the reality of your emotions, process them, allow yourself to have that time to process them and think about them and then let them go, <laughs> move forward with that. Laugh. A lot of people forget to laugh. Go outside, laugh. Actually, recently at, at, at the Wesley Shelter, I had a really stressful day and I went and I grabbed myself a coloring book and some crayons and I only colored on that book. And I said to myself, when was the last time I colored in a coloring book? Mm -hmm. And it was like mm -hmm. more than 10 years ago. So let's do that emotional, like let's process our emotions. And in the spiritual side, find something that inspires you, that makes you take time to reflect on yourself, on life itself, spend time with nature. And it's funny because people say like, go hug a tree, actually do it. You'll feel the different energy of hugging a tree. People don't believe me when I see, say this. I see your face right now. Go outside today, Miss Cherry, and hug a tree. This is very important in the professional aspects of the self-care. Set your boundaries. Set your limits. Respect them. Mm -hmm. That's so important. And that will actually help you through the day. And obviously, seek support of your supervisor. That's always so important, especially when you have an amazing supervisor like I do, that she's all about self-care and understanding it. So, yes. Well, I thank you for that. So this has been a good topic. And again, this topic is not intended to trigger anyone out there. But I really believe that as a community, we can stop a lot of these instances of sexual violence and we can support our victims and our survivors so much more. I say this all the time, Wesley Shelter is in no way a perfect organization but I think we do some amazing work for our community. And uh, I do, I am very serious about radical self-care for the people who support our clients. And Janzel is one of those persons who supports our clients because you can't pour from an empty cup. And if you are consistently hearing and witnessing trauma after trauma after trauma, vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, burnout, all of those things will happen. And if those things happen, it's already a little bit too late. If you are an organization and if you are not allowing or supporting your staff in preventing burnout, you are doing your staff a disservice. If you are an organization and you not you are not allowing your staff the space and the time 
to take care of themselves after an essay call or after a DV crisis, that's problematic. And you are going to see high turnover. You are going to see staff burning out, which means they will quit, which means they will probably leave the field altogether. And that is doing the community a disservice. And so that is some of the things that I work with organizations and with clients with in LC Consulting and Coaching. And so I appreciate Jancel for pointing that out, that I am serious about folks taking care of themselves because I know how hard they work for their clients. And I know the trauma that they are witnessing on a daily basis. Um, Earlier this week, Jancel gifted me some bath uh, salt and I can't wait to do my self-care on uh, so Sundays. I have designated as my radical self-care day where I do all of my hot bath and all of that good stuff. And I can't wait to use the goodies that she gave me. So you got to take care of your people especially when they are holding so much of others. It's important. Well, Jancel, I thank you so much for coming back. No, thank you for bringing (laughs) these topics because it's really important and I'm glad that you're taking space and time to talk about them. So thank you. And peeps out there, don't forget to be fearlessly confident. That's right. Be fearlessly confident. So I thank you all for listening and holding space for this today and I thank you for being present in this moment now if today was pretty heavy for you do me a favor and do some radical self-care do a grounding exercise or go hug a tree (laughs) but do something good for yourself because this was a heavy topic today so you know what we say here on the passionate stewardship podcast Self-care is health care and kindness is free. So do me a favor and be kind to someone today. I love you for listening. And until next time, be good to yourself and to others. Bye.